Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. This is going to be episode 35 of the show, and we got a great guest for you today. But before we dive into that, I want to take a moment to remind you all, check out whatever podcast app you're listening to us on, and uh, look towards the top of your screen, you'll see a subscribe button. If you could go ahead and click that, we'd really appreciate it. It helps us out a lot, and make sure you guys never miss a single episode of our show. We also want to take a moment here just to thank all the incredible sponsors we have here on the show. These are the folks that allow us to continue to interview amazing people from around Columbus every week. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. We're also brought to you by the Sundown Rundown Group. For those of you who aren't familiar with who they are, they connect entrepreneurs with other entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, and talent through things such as monthly business idea pitch events around Ohio, workshops, classes, and co-working partnerships. All of these things are dedicated towards helping entrepreneurs take the next step in making their business idea happen. If you want to check out more about them, go to sundownrundown.org. Our final shout out today goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean is the official disinfectant and deodorizer for USA Wrestling, and they have a patented drop and go product that allows you to disinfect pretty much any surface in as little as 30 seconds. If you want to find out more about Procure Clean, email sales at procureclean.com, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, let's get this episode rolling. could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to Conquering Columbus. This episode we're recording right out of the offices of Resource Amirati, and we're really excited to have Nancy Kramer on the show with us today. Uh, I'm going to kick it over to Josh for a quick uh, background on Nancy. Yeah, for those of you across the city who aren't familiar, Nancy is the founder and current chairman of Resource Amirati, as well as the current chief evangelist at IBM. Uh, she founded Resource Amirati in 1981 with Apple as their first client, and then never looked back from there. Grew it to be one of the largest independently owned marketing agencies in the country, with Nancy at the helm. And we're really excited to have her on the show today, hoping to cover... Um, a lot of that story throughout this interview, and welcome to Conquering Columbus. Oh, thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to sit down with us today. Sure, absolutely. Kind of where we like to kick things off is we, we talk about the moment right now, and then we'll kind of like scoot back and go forward. So what does a day in your life look like now with the way the company's recently changed, 
and uh, I'm sure things are crazy for you. How have your roles kind of evolved in the company to today? Yeah, well, it's been just about a year ago that I announced that our company was acquired and becoming part of IBM, IBM Interactive Experience Group inside of IBM, which is a $2 billion division inside IBM, which is pretty cool. And uh, it's been very different because the kind of conversations and the things that I'm engaged in are very different today than they were a year ago. So for today, for, today, for example, um, uh, I we hosted uh, people from Ford, Ford Smart Mobility, who were here talking about how they can collaborate on the Smart Cities initiative that Columbus won, which resource helped with the positioning on Columbus winning that and I've personally been highly engaged in it and so um, just talking about the collaboration with with some of the different opportunities that might exist as a part of Columbus winning this grant and um, the role that IBM's playing and the role that Ford might play and so it's just a completely different world that is just kind of ratcheted up to a whole different stratosphere. Definitely and you know I think the smart city grant is just really exciting for Columbus and for a lot of reasons. But uh, I guess my question for you is, what, I mean, what do you think the most exciting things that are going to be coming out of that grant are going to be for us? Well, I think it's about um, uh, the long-term vision for the city. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is, you know, there, there's some short-term things that will happen that will be primarily around mobility and accessibility for our citizens. But um, on a, on a longer term basis, I think that this will be a jumping off point. We'll look back at this point and say, that's when Columbus really kind of ratcheted up to a whole different level because it was a catalyst that created a lot of job growth and opportunity and new businesses and new ideas and innovations that were, uh, people are really kind of coming in and wanting to be a part of it. And people like Ford, people like, um, IBM, people like Amazon, Google, all the different car manufacturers, all the different mobility solutions, and all the different analytics companies. It's just, it's very exciting. And as the Internet of Things becomes more prolifer proliferated through our lives and everything is more connected, I think that it will, um, it, it's, it's an inflection point, I think, for our community. So I think it's the catalyst for the future. So kind of what I want to kick into next is talk a little bit about, you spoke about how you make really high level decisions now. How did that, the level of high level <laughs> change from before the acquisition with IBM to where you guys are now? Well, we had grown to be one of the largest independent digital agencies in the country. And um, we were kind of feeling and, and hearing and uh, believing that we needed to be part of a bigger global entity that had deeper technology roots, deeper resources in order for us to compete. That's what we were hearing from our clients. And we also wanted to create an opportunity for our associates to continue to grow into bigger and more expansive opportunities. And so um, uh, with, with the acquisition or becoming part of IBM, um, that certainly is the case, and what we have now behind us are um, the power of incredible technology resources the, um, to be part of this, this company where Cognitive is really fueling the future of how decisions are going to be made. You know, at IBM, um, the CEO doesn't refer to Watson, for example, as being artificial intelligence, but augmented intelligence. So it's really about how this technology that IBM pioneered is really going to help the world and all of us make better decisions on a daily basis 
basis and how it's infiltrated in virtually every experience that we have as a human being as the internet of things becomes a reality and things become more connected there's all that data all that data feeds into um, decision-making support so that we can all you know have more enjoyable lives it's it's really fascinating work it's 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 inspiring work um, and um, yeah and the Internet of Things and artificial intelligence are a rabbit hole that I will run down for hours. But oh, don't get him uh, started. I look at this kid, and it's just unbelievable. But uh, I want to. Did you see the sixty minutes thing with Watson on how no, I haven't seen it. the whole I heard about it, though. The, the cancer and how? Right. I mean, just as an example. So today, about eight thousand papers are published a day on cancer, and so a human being can't possibly digest all of those papers, but. IBM has taught Watson how to read, you know, read and ingest all those papers and then it's helping doctors make better decisions for cancer patients. So patients or doctors that used to be relying on data that was maybe 12 or 24 months old now have the ability to be using up to the date, up to date information that they couldn't possibly ingest, but a computer can, Watson can but a person can't, but it's allowing them to augment their decision, you know, their intelligence in a way that benefits patients. That's it's just amazing. one example, but, and there's so many, but it's really cool, really cool stuff. Yeah, that is amazing. And Mike has this philosophy that we're gonna get overtaken by a bunch of robots and the world is gonna end for humans. But <laughs> really? I think that we could really work side by side, just like situations like that. I think humans are way too sophisticated and intelligent to not, be able to handle what we create and what we evolve, but it's, it is an interesting That's not concept. Happen. I, I don't actually think that artificial intelligence is going to take it. It's not robots, it's artificial intelligence. Oh. That is, is it the big Augmented issue, intelligence. Augmented, augmented intelligence. But, um, I mean, you know, there's a lot of uh, people out there, Elon Musk, some of the bigger names, Bill Gates, all talk about the threat of artificial intelligence. But I think that, you know, as long as we do it in controlled advancement, you know, things, and obviously I'm no one to be talking about the uh, advancement of artificial intelligence considering I have a biology degree and I'm doing a podcast but you have um, those fancy glasses though I, <laughs> so kind of let's get back on track but I want to kick things before we go too far down this rabbit hole maybe we talk about a little bit at the beginning your time at Ohio State what you studied and then how your career evolved until creating resource which is probably a good amount of years in there but condense it whichever way you feel <clears throat> most comfortable well let me just start with that I was born and raised in Columbus and have lived here my entire life so I was lived on the east side of Columbus. I went to high school at Eastmore, and then I'm a first-generation college graduate in my family. I put myself through school by working at Kroger as a cashier um, to pay for my, for my uh, college education because my family was unable to afford it. I, I studied journalism in, in college and uh, with an emphasis in PR, and I did take some marketing courses, but I also took Swahili is my foreign language requirement. Hujambo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who would have thought you'd find two people who took Swahili in the no. same room? Are you serious? Yeah. Did, All right. Was he, wait, did you have the same professor, though? Was oh, it, I can never remember his name. He had, he had the big beard. I don't, I don't know. The hint would be that our oral exams were just talking in English about what I was going to do over the weekend, which I probably probably shouldn't say maybe over the air, but our, our, <laughs> my class was not that difficult. But it was a very, it was a very interesting individual. Well, he inspired so. me to go to, that I should take a trip to Africa, which is something I had dreamed about since I was a little girl. And so um, if it was the same professor, and I'm not sure if it is, but um, he definitely inspired me to go ahead and take the leap and go to East Africa, which I did after I graduated from college. And, you know, this was at a point in time when 
you know, people just didn't pick up and go to Kenya, like not on a tour by themselves, you know, especially a girl. And so I was back in 1977, but it was a pretty, pretty inspirational point for me in my life. It was something that I dreamed about forever and had read about Africa when I was a little girl. And uh, um, it was kind of one of those first points where I could see that if you really dream about something, you can make it happen. So um, it was a really important trip for me. Is anything in particular about that trip really stick out to you looking back on it that kind of changed your thought process or the way that you looked at your career from that point on or, or life in general? Oh, I think that it certainly played into basically anything is possible, and that's pr- pretty much a mantra of my life. I mean, people have told me time and time again things that I've taken on really weren't possible, and I think that that was one of the first times where, you know, where it was a reminder or it was a a a realization that it was actually possible to do what I was doing and going to Africa as a 21 year old college you know newly graduate and uh, um, not on a tour on my own traveling you know doing taking my camera and just me and traveling throughout uh, Kenya it was it was it was definitely something that I carry with me I think every day people told me that I couldn't create this company here in Columbus and keep it in Columbus and start my company with Apple as my first client and be working on all these different technology launches through the years and growing it to be as big as it did, you know, or it has been. And, you know, we've had our series of ups and downs as every company does. Um, but uh, I think that with that, that first trip taught me that you can, you can really make stuff happen if you really believe in it and that anything is possible. It's really my life mantra. Yeah, I think anytime I take a trip out of the city, I've never been, I think I've been to Germany once as a kid, but you realize, you. I think when you stay here so much, you forget how big and how much else is out there and how different everything else is. And then when you come back, you kind of really does open your horizon. I felt that kind of everything is possible after I go through refresher trips like that, which mm-hmm. is really interesting to hear. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but to kick it back to when you got back from Africa, what was the experience like up until creating the company from there? Did you come back and um, take a job when you got back here? How long did, did you stay there? I did. Well, I did. Keep, I kept working at Kroger, uh, and uh, and I ended up working two jobs. I worked at WNCI Radio, and I worked in advertising sales. And that's where I met my original partners in the business who were manufacturers reps for Apple. And we put together the business plan that ended up launching the company that actually Apple provided the seed funding for. So um, I was in advertising sales for four years and then launched the company and here I am. (laughs) So I guess my biggest question is, and I I read a little bit about the story uh, beforehand, but how does, you know, a girl in advertising for WNCI with a journalism degree and a specialization in PR go to Apple in Silicon Valley, pitch them this idea and come back and, and win the business? What, I mean, what did your pitch process look like? What allowed you guys to be effective in your pitch and sell app? Well, it was a very specific um, skill set that I acquired while I was working at WNCI. I specialized in a kind of advertising called co-op advertising. And uh, um, that's really uh, every national manufacturer gives a local retailer advertising money to promote their business on the local level and I specialized in that at WNCI and so the pitch to Apple was that we would 
um, my original partners who were the rep firm for Apple, that we would take their co-op dollars for this five and a half state area that the rep firm um, covered and use it to promote Apple on the local regional and regional basis. And so it first started off in this region and then expanded to the whole country because mm-hmm. Apple agreed to do it as a pilot program for a year. And after a few months, they saw that the the work was actually having a positive impact on their revenue. So they said, how about if you take what you're doing in this you know, five and a half state area and do it for the whole country? And so that's how it began. Mm-hmm. And so for the better part of two decades, I traveled back and forth to California every other week, sometimes every week, um, because in order, you know, this is pre email, you know, fax machines were just kind of new then. And uh, um, that's the way that I needed to keep the business going and keep the relationship going with Apple. And we built and built and built the business from there. And then as people left Apple and went to other companies in Silicon Valley, then the business was built by people saying, hey, Kramer, you helped me over at Apple. Now I'm at, you know, whatever. I mean, so many different technology companies that we had the opportunity to work with. And so that's how for the first 15 years, every one of our clients was a tech company. So we built a reputation for having expertise in technology marketing. Absolutely, and I guess um, the question I was thinking from there was what did your role look like at the early stages of the company when you were just working with Apple? And how did it progress from there in those first few years? And, sorry, they kind of ended it on a, uh, no, it seemed like I wasn't finished with the question, but that, that's the end of the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, um, you know, it was developing the business and mm-hmm. developing, uh, I, I mean, I was really enamored and I've always been enamored with Apple. I really was in love with the idea of Apple. Um, Apple's mission was one person, one computer, um, when when personal computers were not a thing. And I was really drawn to that. I could see that that was really the democratization of information. And I was very inspired by that. And I was inspired by Steve Jobs because he and I are the exact same age. And so the opportunity to... Don't look a day over 25, so oh, I would have never Thank you, that. Josh. I love you. <laughs> um, so the opportunity to work with Apple and be a part of their mission was really what drove me. So how, do I, how did I develop my role in that and helping them communicate what they were trying to accomplish? And so um, it was always through that lens that I operated. And I don't want to spin in the mud too much on it, but at maybe a more granular level, what exactly were you guys doing for them in that five-state region that eventually grew nationally for you guys? We were using, doing marketing and advertising for Apple, um, for, for the region, for okay. the computer retailers. And like a unique fashion than any other kind of company was doing at the yes. time with that co-op strategy yes, that you're saying? Yes, okay. exactly. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And then when you first arrived there, what was the company like? Was it, you know, I mean, everybody envisions Apple now. It's this billion-dollar conglomerate that's just massive. Probably wasn't anything near that at the time. Was it just, like, 20 people in an office, or was it pretty big? It was a few more people than 20. Um, it, was a couple <laughs> of, it was a couple of office buildings at the time. Um, but it's always been very casual, um, very open. Uh, you know, I think that the ethos of Silicon Valley is open and transparency, which is something that, we have always adopted in our environment and in our philosophical approach to business. I think, you know, it's kind of like you are what you eat. And so for us, 
there's a lot of Apple in us because they were such an integral part of our DNA. So um, it was, you know, I would, I can't, I don't know exactly how many people worked there then, but it was a couple of um, office buildings in a benign, non-descriptive office park in Cupertino, California. Definitely. So at, from there, as Apple grew, obviously your business grew too, but um, outside of Apple, which, you know, is a huge first customer, you, you mentioned that as you continue to scale up, you had people that used to work at Apple going to other companies mm -hmm. that would mm -hmm. offer you business. Is there any other ways that you guys were scaling up and um, how quickly did the business grow? We had um, growth year over year over year because the technology industry was growing so rapidly and anybody who, you know, it was almost like if there was a warm body that understood technology marketing, you could, you could uh, um, land a pretty significant piece of business. Um, I'm probably being a little, uh, that, that's probably an exaggeration, let me say, but <laughs> I think we did good work. We did really terrific work for our clients and our reputation really helped us. But I would say that um, the kind of a, a very important point was when the, when the internet was commercialized in the mid 90s, um, it was natural because we had been in technology marketing as everyone was trying to understand the internet and what did it mean for their business. We were, uh, it was a natural evolution for us to play in that space and start working with non-technology clients and helping them understand what this meant to their business. And our first client that wasn't a technology company was L Brands. We did their corporate website for them, which led us to the opportunity to um, try to convince them that taking the Victoria's Secret brand into the e-commerce space would be a good idea. So um, after numerous proposals to um, them, we convinced them that that was a good idea. And so and then we were awarded the business to create the very first Victoria's Secret e-commerce site. And it's amazing now that thinking about like, you had to convince someone that, yeah. hey, you should probably have an internet shop. But uh, it's just kind of incredible to think about that at the time that, you know, um, we'll cut that. <laughs> having, the, having a website was important. Yeah. So as you guys grew, I'm interested to know. I, well, first of all, I think it's really cool is that you guys started with this pretty big size customer. And most of these startups that I've been affiliated with or talked to throughout the community, they start with a small customer and, and they struggle so hard to get their first big one. So you guys mm -hmm. just started big and then kept going big, which is amazing, really cool to hear. But then how did your product offerings change as you guys continue to grow and as the company evolved over that span of years? Well, I would say that um, we're probably uh, on our fourth or fifth chapter in terms of the kind of work that we do that has to always evolve. Um, at, you know, digital wasn't a thing in 1981. And so... Um, it's it you know today the work of our our business is really around um, commerce experiences high level big commerce experiences uh, brand experiences user experiences um, that are very technologically complex um, all the digital touch points from social to mobile to web to you know physical to virtual, you know, all that sort of thing. So it's, it's a very, very complex um, technology uh, uh, work that we, we do now. But it, we, we, I, I think that we learned that we had to constantly be reinventing ourselves being part of a technology company. Um, technology companies by nature are 
um, engineering driven, they're iterative in nature, they're always thinking about what's next. There's never just the iPhone one. You know that it's a constant iteration. And I think that had a profound effect on us as, as a company from a DNA and cultural standpoint that we too felt like our own um, work that we were doing needed to be constantly built upon and evolved to retain our relationship with our clients and to continue to grow and expand. And I think we learned that from being so closely affiliated with Apple. Are there any particular projects throughout that experience that really stick out to you that were either monumental to the company or just a great experience for you and your team that you think like, man, that was really, um, that was just something that really sticks out in my head? Um, I would say that being on, you know, the launch team of the Macintosh was super um, exciting and really fun and and an experience I'll remember for you know forever. Um, the following year, Apple introduced this thing called desktop publishing, which revolutionized the whole graphic design business, which was also incredibly um, inspiring to be a part of. Fast forward, I would say that um, the work that we did for Victoria's Secret and launching them into the e-commerce space and, and having that work be memorialized in a time capsule at MIT was very rewarding to us as an organization. And I would say that, um, the, the work that we have done most recently with Sherwin-Williams, which one would never think that a, a you know 150-year-old or can't, I think it's a 150-year-old paint company would be innovative. They are one of the most innovative companies we've ever worked with, and they are constantly pushing the envelope, and we've created an entire platform based on color confidence for them that has uh, transformed their business and is very inspiring as well. Your paint's going to be a computer before you know it. <laughs> it started a resource. That, yeah. yeah. So one question I had while we were talking about this is you mentioned as the as technology advances and stuff, your guys' role changed. How has the data collection changed and the ability to collect data on what your uh, clients or the results they're getting and how their uh, customers are interacting with them really changed your business? How, well, I mean, it's driving everything today. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's there's nothing that data isn't driving. And so that was non-existent even 15 years ago. Um, but, and it's so accessible now in ways that it wasn't um, so long ago. So it's it's massive, I don't know. I right, mean, it's, it's, it's just, pretty large expansion It's kind of question. like everything. Kind of, right? <laughs> it's kind of the like, especially things, part like, of okay. IBM, it's pretty much everything, so. Mm -hmm. How have you as an individual evolved over the course of those years from working in the business to working on the business to leading people? Um, and I know that's a really big question, so it's hard to answer, so try to maybe make it more granular. Are there any particular experiences or challenges that you faced as the company was growing where you thought maybe this is, you know, this is a really hard job for me to take and I just don't know if I can make it or any doubts or anything along the way? Oh, yeah, I mean, I think every entrepreneur has their doubts and ups and downs, I mean, what day is it? You know, I mean, I uh, I think that we all have those uh, kind of self-doubts. I think for me, one of the hardest times was during the dot-com bubble uh, time period in 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst. And in the span of about 90 days, our business plummeted by 70%. And um, we had to lay people off and recalibrate the entire business. And, and, I, and personally, I was going through a divorce at that time and then and have three children and became a single mom with three kids. 
and uh, the harmonic convergence of those two events were um, a, a very dark period and very uh, the ultimate level of stress for me. So I would say that would be the, the ch most challenging time period for me and something that, you know, definitely didn't kill me, made me stronger, but I don't really want to do it again. <laughs> so what kind of drove you through that period? I mean, obviously your kids were probably a big part of it, but mm -hmm. internally inside of you, is there any strong motivators throughout your life that, you know, they really have driven you to success and, and made you grind through all those tough hours and Oh, times. without a doubt, it was my children, you know, my three children. Um, of all my different roles in my life, being a mom is my favorite. And so um, without a doubt, it was those three kids that were, and, you know, completely, you know, they're, they're all grown and young adults now, but um, uh, definitely the, the thing that, that kept me going. Right, so let's dive into, um the past few years and the acquisition by IBM and transition from there. So when did, um, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier, the need to shift towards a more technology-based company. When did that first start um, going around and did you look at other suitors or did you look at other people? What was that process like? Yeah, it was something that uh, my business partner Kelly Mooney and I had talked about and, and made a decision that, it, you know, as I said, that just based on what we're hearing from clients and looking at what was happening in the marketplace, that it was time for us to be writing the next chapter of the business and um, that in order for the business to, you know, thrive and get to the next level it really needed to be part of a global organization and so we went through a process and we had a number of different suitors and a number of different offers it was um, a very uh, incredibly inspiring um, uh, humbling but inspiring situation to have a, a, a blessing of options um, but we ultimately decided that IBM was the best fit for us for a whole variety of reasons from a cultural standpoint um, from a people practices standpoint from a um, ethos and corporate culture and values was uh, very much aligned with who we are as a company all right and so what what did that process look like as you realized like IBM is who we're gonna move forward with uh, were there any difficulties in setting up the merger or the acquisition and um, how did your employees take it at the time well um it was it was kind of hard because it's a very confidential process right. and them being a public company it has to be very confidential so i and ibm had never purchased a company like ours before and so um, the most challenging part of the process was just them understanding the kind of company that we are and um, uh, as it related to some of the legal documentation and the terms and conditions, it was the most challenging part because they're used to acquiring companies that were software companies or you know technology companies of some sort. So they had purchased services companies before. They purchased um, PwC's service business back 15 years ago, but a creative, digital agency, marketing agency, was a new area for them. They actually bought us and two other companies in Europe within the same week. I can't imagine being Must on be that. nice. Oh, it was really, <laughs> it was really, we had no idea that they were talking to other people, but, so that was the most, just having them understand our business was the, the biggest challenge. And I was, um, it was very, uh, I, I had made the announcement at our company annual meeting. Uh, it was on, 
January 28th of last year at the um, Great Southern Theater. And it had to be very specifically timed because there was going to be a press release that went out on the wire. And I couldn't announce it until the press release went on the wire. So we had a, a very um, specifically set up way that we were announcing the news. And so I asked everyone to please shut off their cell phones and their electronic devices while I could share some really important news with them because I wanted them to hear from me. I wanted them to hear the why, the who and the why from me um, and not from the, right. the wire. And, um, so it was, uh, it was a very stressful day, but um, very well received. And how did that moment feel? I, I tend to ask more philosophical questions on accident, I think, so I apologize if those are hard to answer. But how did it feel internally, I guess, to build this company for so many years and then finally be able to say, you know, I created something so great that this public trade company wants to bring us in and acquire us? I mean, I'm assuming just a large sense of pride, but any other emotions or thoughts that went through your head during that time? Well, it was such a full circle moment for me because Steve Jobs you know, beat into our heads that IBM was, you know, evil big blue. And there's a very famous picture of Steve Jobs giving the IBM logo the finger. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's a very funny picture. Anyway, so the Macintosh, the launch of the Macintosh and the very famous 1984 commercial was all about, you know, big brother, big blue. And at the time, Apple thought that was IBM. And that was the, the metaphor there. And so the very first time I met with IBM, I said, you know, it's just so weird to be sitting across the table from you talking about this, given my beginnings. And so it was very much of a full circle moment. And um, IBM and Apple have a very strong partnership where they have a, a joint venture where IBM and Apple create industry specific industry-specific applications for different large companies. There are people from IBM that are headquartered in Apple's offices in Cupertino and are developing these apps that are you know, being sold with iPads. And so there's a pretty significant joint venture between Apple and IBM, which was really exciting and yet another part of the full circle moment. So it was, I think it was surreal. Any sense of relief in a sense like, the business model that you guys have, I feel like is a very difficult business model. It's like, it's hard to grow. I feel like I worked at a design agency for a little while when I first got out of college and just so hard to sell your time, you know, mm -hmm. instead of an actual product. So was it a sense of relief for you that you didn't have to worry so much about reinventing yourself anymore because you guys had finally found a place or is it even more so you have to keep reinventing yourself because now you're a part of this big um, entity? Um, I, I wouldn't use the word relief. I felt I I felt and continue to feel like it was the right time. It was the right company, um, and I am inspired by the possibilities and the opportunity for everyone. Um, the decision was based on opportunities for our associates, opportunities for our clients, and, and also what's the opportunity for our community. Um, certainly one of my biggest nightmares was to have created this company and had it be a thriving business inside Columbus for 35 years and have it be pulled apart in some way, shape, or form. And so having a, an organization that had a commitment to the community and was interested in investing in the community was part of the decision-making process. So I, was, I, I continued to be 
um, excited and and really happy about that. It's more than the end of the road. It was just a new road. It's a new road. And right. I'm really learning so much and having the opportunity to work on things like the the thing that we were talking about with Ford and um, learning about things like you know, multimodal price optimization and yield management. And I didn't even know what any of those words were, you know, a year ago. But and if now you throw I, that out <laughs> in a meeting, that is good. That's right? like a good party trick, yeah, right? right? <laughs> Boom. That's just what but I've been working on. I actually know what that is now. And it's super exciting to me that I actually the know that. The trick is spelling it. You can know what it is. <laughs> I have to go to a meeting with an IBM fellow who has written algorithms that run our airline system is pretty darn cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's Some really brilliant algorithm. people out there. It's a really <laughs> important <laughs> algorithm. My dad flies for uh, JetBlue, so uh, that algorithm keeps my dad from crashing into other people. Yeah. But um, what I wanted to jump into was uh, today you're the chairman of Research Samarani. You're still leading the company here, but you're the chief evangelist with IBM. So mm-hmm. what does that role look like? And um, well, what's, you know, what's the definition of chief evangelist at IBM do? Well, uh, it is, I, I'm the chief evangelist in IBM IX, which mm-hmm. is the interactive experience group inside IBM. And so it's about helping evangelize and spread the gospel, if you will, about what this means, what the opportunities are, what we offer to clients, the work that we've done, sharing the, the kind of work that we've done and be able to present it to clients and to, you know, internal audience and external. There's over, I think there's about 400,000 people inside IBM. So just even having people inside the company understand what this this offering is and what the possibilities are for their clients is a big part of the job. And then speaking externally about what the opportunities are and, and what we bring to the table is, is really what it's all about. Were there any significant mentors for you within the city or outside the city that you went to on a regular basis as the company was growing that really helped you to bounce ideas off of or evolve as a person, both professionally and personally? Um, You know, I I have, um, we've had a board of advisors, which has been really helpful. I've been uh, in an organization called YPO uh, for a long, long time, and that's been an incredible support network for me. Um, I would say, you know, business advisors in YPO would be the kind of top of the list in terms of that kind of that kind of mentor and um, and help. Did it help you in terms of like the standards that you held yourself to at all? Because I find myself like the more I um, am fortunate enough to be associated with more successful people, it really raises my standards that I hold myself to personally and like makes me want to achieve a lot more and believe I can achieve a lot more. So. Did the different individuals that you're surrounded with here in Columbus and um, in the YPO kind of help you do that or not at all? You can say no to me if, it, if not at all. We'll edit it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I think that because we started with Apple as our first client, um, that kind of set the tone. Yeah, you don't and, need a lot of standards. Uh, so had we started with... I can't even think of, you know. Conquering uh, Columbus. Yeah, I mean, had we started <laughs> with, uh, you know, a small retail company or, I, you know, I'm not sure. It would have been a very, very different story. So mm-hmm. I think starting with Apple was just an amazing opportunity that kind of set the bar pretty high from the get-go. So key takeaways, just start with the biggest customer possible <laughs> right. and you well, don't 
I think one of the biggest key takeaways from that is to not be afraid to go out and at least try and pitch somebody because, you know, a lot of people, like you said at the beginning, uh, kind of circling around back to what we were talking about early on is people said, you're crazy. You can't just go walk up and pitch Apple and run away with the deal. But that's exactly what you did, and it allowed your business to grow to the point where it is today. Um, but what I wanted to jump into and what I want to talk about now is you've grown up in Columbus your whole life. Um, what do you think of the city of Columbus as a whole, uh, both as a place to live and a place to do business? Well, I think it's a fabulous place to do business. I have always had my business located in or around downtown. I've always believed that having um, especially a creative and innovative company needs the energy of the urban core. Uh, I just think that energy feeds off of each other. So. Uh, and we've seen more density in, and more opportunity for different, different things that energize our associates. And so I think Columbus continues to be an incredible place to do business. I think that the growth that's happened in downtown, the downtown living is so exciting to see. I think that there are something like 10,000 people or, you know, 15,000 people, I think, maybe, or 10,000 units, 15,000 people, something like that, that are living downtown now, um, which is, I think, very invigorating, and you can feel the energy. I'm super excited about um, how it's spilling into Franklinton and what's happening there, and um, my husband and I are very involved in a number of things over there. Uh, so I, I'm just very bullish on Columbus. We're going to see great growth over the next couple of decades. And as a result, I think that um, it also is a great place to live. I think as um, looking back on being a single mom with three kids and going through the dot-com bubble bursting and all the drama and the different ups and downs of the business, being able to have the quality of life that I've had, being able to raise my three children and um, launch them into the world I, I, in the way um, that I wanted to, I'm not sure that that would have been possible in another market. I feel like Columbus has been and continues to be very, very good to me, very, very good to its citizens. And um, I, 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 every, every chance that I get when I talk about it, the more excited I am. I think that the thing that differentiates Columbus from a lot of other cities, and it was my husband who first made note of this, no one thinks that Columbus's best days are behind them. Everyone thinks that our best days are ahead of us. We're not looking to recapture the Columbus of old, like some other markets have been forced to try to recapture, you know, different eras of their, of their um, city's history. We believe that the continued you know, growth in the, the city, it will continue, and that our best days are ahead of us. And I think that that's part of what makes Columbus a good place for business and a great place to live. Right. When we got to put a timestamp on that, because now whenever someone asks me why I moved from San Diego to Columbus and then stayed here, I'm just going to pull up the podcast and play that. Just a snippet that you'll have. I was talking to somebody the other day who moved from London, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, she said all of her family in Europe was like, where, where do you right. live? And she said, I love it here. Mm-hmm. She'd be an interesting person for you to um, speak with probably. Her name is Yasmin. She works at Drive Capital. Oh, her, you know, heard great things about, about her. her. Yeah. yeah, she's super awesome. So yeah, I think brilliant. she'd be fun for you guys to interview to get that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would be really cool. Um, and some, probably one or two more questions here. Kind of a wild card one I like to throw out. I like to try to get to know the people interviewing a little bit more as a person because I think it, 
like your your family your environment says a lot about how you got to where you are so in terms of like siblings and your husband and things like that what do they do you have any siblings and I have an older brother he lives okay. in New York City okay. he and I are very different <laughs> but very much the same and uh, my father was a salesman for Keebler cookies and my mom was a stay-at-home mom and uh, I the grew up in a very very modest uh, household in um, off of Livingston Avenue on the east side of Columbus and uh, went to Christ the King School and to Eastmore. And um, I think that whole experience shaped me in a variety of ways. I mean, first of all, my father was a hardcore Democrat. My mother was a hardcore Republican, which was very interesting during <laughs> political season. And um, Eastmore was interesting in that uh, the student population was a third African-American, a third Jewish, and a third whatever, and I was a part of the third whatever. But it just, the, the power of that diversity, I, I've always loved diverse environments, and I think that I just learned the power of how important that is, uh, being at Eastmore. Um, and my husband is Christopher Celeste, and uh, it is my second marriage, and he has three children, and his children and my children are the exact same ages. We are the Brady Bunch. We have uh, two children that are 23, two children that are 26. Well, they're not children, they're adults, right. and two that are 28. So uh, we each have a boy, and, uh, and then four young women, and they're on either coast from Portland to San Francisco to Martha's Vineyard to New York to Washington, D.C. So no one is back here yet. <laughs> Any of so, them entrepreneurs? Um, not yet. Some, well, actually, no, I take that away. Our, our daughter in Martha's Vineyard has um, opened up a market, a, uh, a, a takeaway food market. So she is on a path for being an entrepreneur. So... She lands sunkissed as her first customer. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, one of the other questions we always like to ask is, uh, do you have any advice or uh, words of wisdom for aspiring entrepreneurs or current entrepreneurs that are listening to our podcast here in the city? I think that I always tell people that trying to have the courage to trust your gut is really important. I think that so many times everyone around us surrounds us with, you know, you should do this or you should do that. Or you ask, you, there's so much self-doubt. You ask, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And sometimes I think you could get very easily lost in what your own thought is by asking too many people's opinion as opposed to just trusting your gut. And I find when I listen to my gut and I have the courage to trust my gut, then it usually serves me well. Do you fear failing at all, or do you just have a lot of confidence in yourself? Oh, I think that, you know, there's things that I fail at every day. So um, uh, I got, you just got to have to pick up and try again. And then the final question, kind of a theme of our podcast and what we kind of uh, like to represent is uh, live uncomfortably. And we like to know kind of what that means to our guests. So what we found throughout our time around successful people is that a lot of them have had to live uncomfortably for extended periods in their life to get to where they are. Um, does that theme mean anything in particular to you? And is there any points in your life? Obviously, you said like when the internet bubble, dot com bubble burst. Yeah, that would be the most uncomfortable, uncomfortable time. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> like... Uh, uh, you and about it's, two million other people or yeah. whoever else was affected. Probably yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty, that was about as uncomfortable as it gets, so um, very, very uncomfortable. Well, I think that's about all we got, and uh, it was an awesome interview, and it was really awesome to dive into your story and into your mind a little bit, and thanks for your time. We appreciate it. I know you got plenty going on, so. Sure thing.
Thanks a lot, Nancy. Of course. We appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, Conquerors. That's the end of episode 35. We hope you enjoyed our time with Nancy, and we hope you guys learned a lot. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're all over social media, and if you could share it with your friends, that'd be even better. Before we let you go, we want to take one last minute to give a big shout-out to all of our incredible sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. We're also brought to you by the Sundown Rundown Group. For those of you who aren't familiar with who they are, they connect entrepreneurs with other entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, and talent through things such as monthly business idea pitch events around Ohio, workshops, classes, and co-working partnerships. All of these things are dedicated towards helping entrepreneurs take the next step in making their business idea happen. If you want to check out more about them, go to sundownrundown.org. Our final shout-out today goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean is the official disinfectant and deodorizer for USA Wrestling, and they have a patented drop-and-go product that allows you to disinfect pretty much any surface in as little as 30 seconds. If you want to find out more about Procure Clean, email sales at procureclean.com, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of today's episode. We'll talk to you guys next week. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.